Hey everyone, Paul here. You're listening to part two in a series that's entitled In Christ Alone, Salvation in a Pluralistic World. If you haven't listened to part one in this series yet, I highly recommend it. Please take time. It's actually, by my standards, <laughs> not very long. It's only a 45-minute or so uh, long episode. If you want to chug through it really quickly, just turn up the speed, listen to it at maybe two times speed if you can handle that. Before you get into today's episode, it's really important that episode sets the stage for what we're talking about today. To do a basic review, of course, we, we set up the challenge, the question that many Christians have about the nature of salvation, and in particular, what does... What does it mean for the Native American that lived in the Middle Ages or the Chinese Taoist living in the first century who had never heard of the name Jesus? Or what does it mean for, let's say, a young boy raised in Syria, raised in a Muslim family who perhaps died this week? Did they have any chance of finding the way to God? Do they have any chance at the salvation that we as Christians believe is found in Jesus Christ? What does it actually mean for salvation to be found in Christ alone? In today's episode, I will be presenting to you a biblical case for there being a variety of epistemological paths to salvation in Christ. Is it a sinner's prayer that's salvific? Is it baptism that's salvific or some other sacrament that's salvific? Is it intellectual adherence or cognitive agreement to a certain list of propositions about Jesus that is salvific? Or is Christ alone salvific? Today's episode and all of our episodes are made possible by the generous support of listeners just like you. Stay tuned at the end of today's episode to find out how you can become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, which is the best way to support this podcast, to make sure that I can continue to do this ad-free, but it's also a place where you can connect with other listeners from around the world who are wrestling with these same sorts of questions, but they're tired of chaotic deconstruction, they're tired of living plugged into the constant culture war matrix, and together they're trying to find a better different way, dare I even say, a narrow way. So again, make sure you stay tuned at the end of today's episode to find out more information about how you can get connected with this really, this growing network of friends from around the world. Today, I want to begin my case for what we could call Christocentric inclusivism with a case from the scriptures. I want to build this case for you, starting with the scriptures, knowing that if I were to begin by just using reason or the arguments of great Christian thinkers from the past, that that probably won't suffice in convincing many of you who are uh, currently still in evangelical context, or you grew up in an evangelical context, you have maybe, again, like most evangelicals, a more Protestant bent towards seeing scripture as the final authority in doctrine and conduct. That, you guys are the ones I'm primarily talking to in this particular series. Um, Roman Catholics, if you're Eastern Orthodox, if you're agnostic, certainly feel free. Maybe you're even in 
another religious tradition altogether and you're just curious and you're you've stumbled upon this podcast and you're just curious about what at least one Christian guy out there might 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 think about salvation and, and your religion, I, I welcome all of you to keep listening. But I'm specifically starting here knowing that many of you still hold to this this um, Protestant, this evangelical commitment to see Scripture as the final authority in doctrine and conduct. I, I certainly still do. So we're going to begin there because I think we have to begin to see the viability of this position within the text of Scripture in order to even consider it at all. Those who go searching the Bible for an explicit proof text to definitively answer the questions that I posed at the beginning of episode one, the questions about what happens to our hypothetical first century Taoist or the Native American, you're, you're bound to be disappointed if you're looking for a singular proof text. And by the way, that's just no way, no proper way to go through and figure out uh, what is essential to the Christian story. We don't build the, our, our Christian narrative by a, just a, a network of, of proof texts that we, we string together. Instead, what we want to do is we want to comb through the scriptures in their entirety and try to get a sense of the overarching biblical narrative. You know, as far as we know, many of the biblical authors didn't even know that some of these peoples even existed. Certainly, it'd be unreasonable for us to believe that the Apostle Paul knew there was another continent out there that we might call today North America, and that there were peoples living on that continent. Certainly, he knew there were people outside of his immediate context. He was well aware of that well-educated person. And of course, if we go back even further into the Old Testament, I mean, there's just, <laughs> there's just no way that, let's say, the, you know, the, the, the author or authors of the book of Isaiah have really any idea that there are these peoples and religions so far outside of their Mediterranean world. Maybe they could assume it. Um, maybe there were hints of it. Certainly, of course, by the time we get into the New Testament, there's a growing awareness of a world outside of the, the Roman Empire. Certainly, people were aware of that. But the extent of which there were people and have been people living in these places has to be far beyond what the biblical authors who were human could have possibly imagined. So we need to take that into account when we go looking through the scriptures. Just as we talk about in science and faith issues, we cannot impose our questions onto specific biblical texts and go, here we go, this is, this is the answer that we're looking for, when it might not even have been on their grid to specifically try to answer the questions that we have. What we can affirm, though, is that the Bible provides ample evidence of people with wrong, incomplete, and non-Christian epistemologies, non-Christian ideologies, still coming into positively affirmed experiences of God and salvation through Jesus Christ. Let's begin with the affirmation of the global, perhaps we should even say cosmic scope of God's redemptive plan throughout the meta-narrative of Scripture. As theologian over at Fuller Seminary, 
Veli Mati Karkanian, who I might still be butchering his name, he highlights in his excellent book an introduction to the theology of religions, biblical, historical, and contemporary perspectives, quote, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the very beginning of both the Bible and the Pentateuch, display a universal orientation, end quote. Abraham, so we can see at the very beginning of the Bible, to paraphrase Carcanian here, that the very beginning of the Bible, of the Pentateuch, of both the Jewish and now Christian scriptures, display a universal orientation, a global, a cosmic orientation to God's plan of salvation in the world. Oftentimes, we as Christians, we, we commonly, when we think about salvation, for various reasons, historical reasons, historical theolog theological reasons, we oftentimes jump too quickly into the covenants that God made with Abraham and Moses and skip the covenants that God made with Adam and Noah. The Adamic and Noahic covenants were universal. They have a global orientation for Adam to all the peoples of the world, all of his descendants, right? Adam as a, a typological representation or representative of all humanity. And in the story of Noah, we actually see God display not just a salvific orientation to all the humans on the planet, but a salvific plan, a cosmic plan for all of creation, even including plant and animal life. So we can't skip over those and jump too quickly to the covenants made with Abraham and Moses, which were particular and vocational. In Adam and Noah, God entered into a covenant with all of humanity. Genesis 10, for example, it describes how the descendants of Noah spread out to become the nations of the entire earth. The descendants of Abraham, who received the Mosaic law and its covenants, were never the only peoples to have access to covenant relationship with God. We need to understand this part of the biblical narrative, that Abraham's descendants, were it was never intended in the biblical story for Abraham, who is set apart in chapter 12 of Genesis, set apart in a particular way, it was never intended to be understood that the descendants of Abraham alone would be the ones that God would have a salvific desire for, that God would have a covenant with. Abraham is set apart in chapter 12 so that he and his family can be a blessing to the entire world. As Karkanian mentions in that aforementioned book, quote, this is the beginning of the pattern so prevalent in the Old Testament. A person or nation is set apart for God's purposes for the rest of the world. Particularity is put in the service of universality. End quote. Man, that, that's such an, a great insight and summarization from Karkanian on this pattern in the biblical narrative, particularity put in service of universality. Abraham is set apart and his descendants are set apart to be, they are particular. It is an exclusive covenant, but that particular exclusive covenant isn't about who is saved and not saved. It isn't about who God loves and who God doesn't love. 
they are set apart exclusively to be in service to the rest of the world. It's a vocational calling. I believe if we understand these covenants, these early Genesis covenants correctly, what we need to begin to see is that the Abrahamic covenant and then later the Mosaic covenant, these are covenants with particular people. Yes, they are exclusive to particular people, but they are exclusive so that those people would be called to a particular vocation. And that vocation was to be a light unto the nations. For example, look at the summarization of that vocational call in Isaiah 42, 6 and Isaiah 49, verse 6. Certainly, we can see throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, there's obvious reference to the, the dark and deceptive illusions of false religions and idol worship. In the Old Testament, Israel's specific vocation, the descendants of Abraham, the covenant people of God, and when we say that, it doesn't mean that God is, does not, is, his goodness is not oriented towards the rest of the planet. It's when we say the people of God, God's bride, it's the people that are set apart to the specific vocational call. And we can see in the Old Testament that Israel's specific vocation is to illuminate the truth about what God is like in order to correct the demonic deceptions that darken people's minds and keep them from living in the covenantal relationship extended to all humanity. A covenantal relationship extended to all humanity in God's unconditional covenant with Adam in Genesis 1 verses 26 through 30. There were no conditions on that covenant. There were no conditions to God's disposition towards humanity being for humanity's good, being for humanity's salvation. However, the Old Testament also cites several examples of people who would not have epistemologically known God as Yahweh. So that is the name again that, that God reveals himself to be to Moses, right? Before Moses uh, heads out into his particular calling as a deliverer, God reveals himself as I am that I am. I will be what I will be. I mean, I don't think anybody, there's so much debate on what that tetragrammaton means. Um, that's a whole nother subject altogether. But God gives a specific revelation of his name as part of Moses's calling to be a deliverer. So there are many, I should say at least, maybe not many, but there's at least several examples of people mentioned in the Old Testament who do not know God as Yahweh let alone know God as he's revealed in Christ, because obviously the incarnation hasn't happened yet. But even with that, we see evidence, several examples of people that don't know God as Yahweh, let alone even as Christ, which would be everybody in the Old Testament, yet they're spoken of positively. Their faith is spoken of positively enough to infer that they are to be considered among those who still know the true God somehow. 
oftentimes the evidence of their right relationship with God is expressed by their behaviors, or we could say by the fruits of their life. Oftentimes, we see a correlation, I'd say every time actually, we see correlation between people who have right relationship with God, not not via a criteria, a evaluative, an evaluative criteria of, well, did they have all the right propositions down about God? We see people in the Old Testament who are not Israelites. They are people outside of the vocational call to be in Abraham's family who are still, albeit affirmed as having, or at least inferred, that they know God somehow, and we can see evidence that they know God through the fruits of their life. The fruits specifically mentioned in the vocational covenant God made with Moses and Israel as the people of God. So to put it another way, we see people who should be pagans because of wrong epistemology, because of wrong perceptions of God, actually considered to be saints with faith that produces the kind of covenantal fruits which demonstrate that they are part of the people of God. Let's take a look at some of these examples together. One of the best examples of what we might be able to call saved pagans or pagans that appear to be in somehow covenantal type relationship with God. One of the best examples of this is right in the very beginning or near the beginning of the scriptures in the book of Genesis, Genesis 14. And this is the, this is the case of the mysterious priest of El Elyon known as Melchizedek. From the textual evidence, it's clear that Melchizedek is operating as a religious priest, obviously not in the family of Abraham, so that's clear. (laughs) And he's living before the Levitical priestly functions, the Mosaic Covenant, were even created. Yet he affirms that he worships the same creator God as Abraham, which Abraham also affirms by giving Melchizedek the king of Salem, the king of peace, king of righteousness, he gives to Melchizedek a tithe of his bounty. How did Melchizedek know God without Abraham telling him? Well, we can't know for certain, but if God has made clear his universal accessibility in the Adamic and Noahic covenants, then it stands to reason that someone like Melchizedek would have been truly able to find God outside of the family of Abraham. Was Melchizedek the only priest on the planet that lived in a relationship with God outside of Abraham and his family? To me, that seems unreasonable. We can't say one way or the other, but that Melchizedek exists gives some reason to believe that at this point in history, I, you know, it seems reasonable to me that there would be be others like Melchizedek somewhere else on the planet, maybe even here in North America, maybe even right here in Minnesota at that exact time. Maybe there were Melchizedek-like priests in ancient China, in India, in Africa. We can't say for certain, but there is reason 
there's reason for us to be hopeful that if there is a Melchizedek out there, well, then maybe there's more like him. Instead of believing that maybe at this point that Abraham and his family are the only people to have salvific access to God. This mysterious priest, this mysterious priest of El, El Elyon, God Most High, which before you just go and be like, well, that's just another term for God. Yeah, (laughs) if you understand Semitic religions, uh, you know that 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 we can't jump to that conclusion right away. It's actually God Most High is a title used in a variety of Semitic religions to refer to whoever they considered to be the, the hierarchical apex of their polytheistic pantheon. So, you know, we don't know what Melchizedek believed other than Abraham saw him as being worthy to give an offering to And interestingly enough, what does Melchizedek do? Melchizedek brings out to Abraham bread and wine. He is a priestly forerunner to Jesus's priesthood. We we actually see this explicitly affirmed in Hebrews 7. Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews even suggests, not suggests, but pretty explicitly states, that Melchizedek's priestly order was superior to the Levitical order of the Mosaic Covenant. Golly, that's a wild concept if we think about the implications of that. Let's consider now another odd Old Testament pagan example. Another person who's even listed in Hebrews as being among the heroes of faith. You know, that famous section of scripture in Hebrews 11. It's a peculiar Old Testament pagan, a woman by the name of Rahab. Now, we have to say something, first of all, about this name Rahab. I mean, there's layers of meaning in this woman's name right away. Obviously, one of the ones that we're, most people are familiar with is the association of Rahab with prostitution. We actually see that explicitly mentioned. In Hebrews 11, verse 31, you know, that, that she's listed among the heroes of faith. It says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Um, but there's also another layer of meaning in the name Rahab to at least um, ancient, an ancient Jewish person. Uh, according to more mythology or folklore, one of the great chaos creatures of the sea, along with Leviathan, there was another chaos creature known as Rahab. So, I mean, this, this is a, a name that you go, boy, what a, what a lovely name for one's, for one's daughter. You know, Rahab the, Rahab the sea monster. We're going to call her daughter the sea monster. And certainly, she is not. Uh, she is Canaanite. There could be even some, though this is disputed, there could be even some inference by the the Hebrew, the Hebrew term uh, used to describe Rahab in Joshua 2.1, and I do not speak Hebrew, I'm not fluent in Hebrew, uh, Ish, Ishazona, which there is some dispute as to whether or not that's, that's a term which, again, gets translated as, to, as a prostitute, whether or not that actually infers that she was part of a, um, the cultic Canaanite religious practice of um, what they would have considered as like sacred prostitution. You know, we can't say this for certain, 
But there's certainly an inference here that the inn that Rahab keeps here is potentially a brothel, right? So it might, might not just be a hotel that she's keeping in, uh, in the book of Joshua here. So how does someone like this make it into the list of heroes of faith in Hebrews 11? Well, Rahab is a shining example of faith and mentioned among the patriarchs even though all she did was simply perform an act of hospitality towards foreign enemies of her own people. But it's not merely hospitality, okay? It wasn't that she just did something kind or nice. It's that in this instance, she's actually acting in keeping with the Torah. The Torah commands to provide hospitality to foreigners. This is credited to her as faith in the true God, even though Joshua 2 makes clear that the only thing she was giving cognitive assent to was that Israel's Yahweh was capable of destroying her city and her people. I mean, that's all the, the sort of profession of faith. We go, hey, Rahab, give us a profession of faith about what you believe about Israel's God. And from all the evidence we have in Joshua 2, seems like, well... All she would say would be like, hey, well, all I know is I've heard that Israel's God can wipe out our city. So that's good enough for me, (laughs) right? All of this evidence in Joshua 2 seems to point to her just simply being afraid and acknowledging the power of this Yahweh as being real, which in the ancient Near Eastern world would not preclude the very strong possibility that she could have still thought that there were many other powerful gods out there that could also destroy her city. Amazingly, this Canaanite prostitute, her act, which was kind of deceptive and driven by fear, but was full of hospitality, is a salvific enough demonstration of faith that the salvation she experiences is not just for herself, but ends up providing safety, protection, again, typological, typological picture of salvation, not just for her, but for her whole family. Hospitality to the foreigner was a central component of the Mosaic Covenant. We see that in Deuteronomy 24, verses 17 to 22. Leviticus 19, verses uh, 33 and 34. But we have no reason to believe, based on any of the evidence in the text, that Rahab had any direct knowledge of the Torah, the Torah, the law that God gave in the Mosaic Covenant. Instead, Rahab found her way into salvation through faith, despite her flawed epistemology. And while salvific ontological union with God was not fully possible until the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus, she gives a faithing response to the light she had received. And what we can we can say with certainty that the light she had received, she responds in faith to, and we can say that with certainty because we can see the fruit, the fruit that was born in her life, the fruit that accompanies the covenant people of God. In this case, it was hospitality to foreigners. In the letter popularly attributed 
to the church father known as Clement, and this letter, this epistle is commonly called First Clement. It's, it was a letter celebrated in the early church, um, you know, not part of the canon of Scripture, but very important, influential, great insight into what early Christians believed. The author suggests that through Rahab's faith expressed as hospitality, redemption, quote, flowed from the blood of the Lord to her, end quote. Again, take note that this salvation is not just extended to her, but to her family, who had likely nothing to even do with Rahab's harboring of the Israelite spies. The salvation of Rahab's family from judgment shows that God is not restricted to waiting for the kinds of individualistic transactions of faith that are so popularly emphasized in common evangelical soteriology. This is not—God doesn't have to wait for this, like, individualistic sinner's prayer transaction that we think is central to salvation in order to bestow his salvific benefits on someone. In some, in some cases, one's faith might even be credited to others who have had no discernible faithing event. And we can actually see positive affirmation of this possibility in the New Testament as well. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7.14, we read, we read there that one's individual faith in Jesus may possibly be extended beyond oneself and even bring potentially salvation, if not at the very least, sanctification to others who have no faith in Christ at all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we see Paul encouraging believers in Corinth who are married to unbelievers to remain married to them, and this is the encouragement he extends to them. Quote, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy, end quote. Like Rahab, the wife who believes in faith somehow has God's mercy extended to her household. While this individual believer has expressed a cognitive affirmation in the risen Christ, salvation is extended to those who have not done so. I'd suggest as even possible encouragement to those that are in these sorts of family relationships with people, I would suggest that you don't have to throw out the possibility that your entire life, and I know people who are in these sorts of marriages that really wrestle with, like, God, what is going to happen to my husband, to my wife, to my family member? Now, I'm not promising you anything at all, but I am giving you at least some glimmer of hope that I think comes from the scriptures that there could be the possibility that someone's faithing response in a family, a mother, a father, who knows, even a child, that that faithing response to God, whatever that might look like, might present an opportunity for salvation, for sanctification, for a deeming of 
uh, of that entire household, that this is a holy household to happen through the faithing response of one family member. I think it's entirely possible. I'm not telling you that it's definitely the case. I'm not trying to suggest that stories like Rahab or 1 Corinthians 7 are the rule instead of maybe just an exception to the rule. But if we can acknowledge that there are even exceptions to these rules of salvation that we have, then perhaps we can be open to the gospel being even more inclusive than the strict limits of ecclesiocentric exclusivism. If you read through the New Testament, you can see, especially in the Gospels, in Acts, in Romans and Galatians in particular, that one of the primary conflicts running throughout these books is conflicts between those who are announcing a radically inclusive message of God's salvation and those who believe that it's only through following a strict, what we might say, biblical prescription for salvation within the Jewish faith that one can be saved. Throughout the New Testament, we, we can see the clear affirmation of God's universal plan for salvation. The definitive statement of God's universal plan for salvation, the climactic statement of God's love towards all humanity takes place in the incarnation, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The saving work of Jesus Christ is not to be offered exclusively to the descendants of Abraham, the people of God. They are people of God by their vocational call. The work, the saving work of Christ isn't just offered to them. It isn't just offered to those who kept the Mosaic covenant, but rather it is offered to the entire world, including people from every tribe and tongue. And this is what made the message of Jesus so controversial. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to his baptismal site, he exclaimed, quote, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. End quote. That's from John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist's proclamation is the announcement that God, who had made a covenant with the whole world and Adam and Noah, and whose covenant with Abraham and Moses was intended to be for the sake of the world, that this God has provided the perfect means for the world to not only experience covenantal relationship with him, but ontological communion with him. This announcement from John the Baptist is just. It's just one of many texts in the New Testament that express God's explicit desire for the salvation of the world. If you've ever had a, you know, Calvinist versus Arminian debate <laughs> in your dorm room somewhere or in a Bible study, you, you probably know these scripture passages. Places like 1 Timothy 2.4, 1 Timothy 4.10. 2 Peter 3.9, and of course, John 3.16. You know, look those up on your own. I'm not going to read through all of them, but we are, many of you are familiar with those passages, familiar with, at least, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16, universal, global, cosmic disposition. 
And I'm not trying to proof text here, just bring a string of proof text together. I'm trying to show you how this connects to the overarching biblical narrative. You know, we can look at a place like 1 Timothy 2, uh, and maybe we should read some of this here together. 1 Timothy 2, well, I'll start at verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live in peace that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now, if God consistently in his revelation in Scripture expresses a disposition to save, to offer salvation to the entirety of the world, if that happens, if we see that consistently, and I believe we do, that the work of Jesus on the cross was intended for all peoples everywhere, how can it really truly be God's desire If God has not provided a way for everyone in the whole world to access this salvation in Christ, there were dogmatic exclusivists in Jesus' day, too. Those who believed that the salvation of the coming messianic age would only be for those who were just the covenant people of God by birth or by conversion. We see one example of this. It, we could call it uh, Israel-centric exclusivism in Luke 4, verses 14 to 30. In this scene, Luke tells of how Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah at the synagogue. You guys remember this scene? Jesus in his hometown, Nazareth. It's his day to read the scripture passage in church. Obviously, it's not church, it's synagogue. So he gets up, opens up the scroll, starts reading, and announces... That the good news for the poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed had come in him. And actually, initially, read back through it. The crowds aren't upset by this. The crowds are like, hey, sweet, dude. Like, awesome. They are actually really uh, delighted at this announcement and his, what they say is his gracious words. But what is it that changed the tone of the room? The tone of the room changes. (laughs) And the The people in attendance at synagogue that day turn on Jesus when Jesus described how God's favor had been extended to heathens in foreign lands and even how at times it had passed up God's covenant people and went straight to their enemies instead. This good news for the poor suddenly didn't sound like the good news that the people in attendance that day were expecting infuriated. They sought to kill Jesus right there on the spot. They wanted to just throw him off a cliff. That's how upset they were. But have you ever taken time to like really sit with that passage and to take a look at, well, what were the cases that Jesus cited, the cases in Israel's past in which God's favor was extended to their enemies and to heathens and to pagans? Have you ever taken a look at that? What were the cases that Jesus pointed to of people receiving God's salvific mercy that weren't 
Israelites. Well, one of them was the, he points to is the uh, widow at Zarephath. The widow at Zarephath had no discernible belief in Yahweh. And given the location of her residence, she was likely in another religion altogether. But she, like Rahab, what did she do? Just like Rahab, she extended radical hospitality towards the foreigner Elijah and was saved. Her faithing action, her response to the light that she was given was radical hospitality. And that faithing response, that faithing action was credited to her as righteousness. This faithing action was expressed as a fruit of the Mosaic Covenant, just like Rahab, in radical hospitality. The radical hospitality, I would say, is the demonstration. It is the the fruit of faith. God's salvific mercy then was imparted to her and to her son. The other case that Jesus mentions is the case of Naaman. Naaman was an enemy captain of the army of of the king of Aram. Like the widow of Zarephath, Naaman is probably an idol worshiper. Like, he's, <laughs> he's not an Israelite. He's not a person in the people of God, the family of God. He's not part of this covenant people, the covenant that, again, I want to make clear, the covenantal call to be a blessing to the world, to do that unique job description, to be a light to the nations. Naaman's not in that group. He's probably an idol worshiper. His only faith, in in that instance, if we go back and look at this scene, his only faith is in a rumor of Elijah's healing abilities. And it was kind of like reluctant at that. His faithing response, his faithing action, the evidence of at least some minor modicum of faith is a reluctant baptism that that results in the restoration of Naaman's health. As a result of his healing, Naaman then comes to place his trust in Yahweh. In many other gospel cases, it would seem that people who would have likely had very flawed pagan epistemological frameworks are somehow accessing the salvation found in Jesus Christ and then being commended as better examples of faith than even Jesus' own disciples. Take the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, 28, or the Roman centurion in Matthew 8, 10. Those are a couple examples. Obviously, in these examples, these individuals are explicitly placing their trust in Jesus. And they are giving their cognitive assent to, at the very least, something like Jesus' ability to heal. But there can be very little doubt that either of these individuals, neither of them would have had a completely biblical understanding of who the Christ was at all. After all, Jesus' own disciples didn't even understand who he was most of the time. How much of A proper biblical understanding of the Messiah did a Roman centurion have or a Canaanite? 
how had their own religions, their cultural values, and and their worldviews better prepared them to trust Christ in a way that the teachers of the law and the Bible scholars of their day could not. It's astounding. It's controversial. And it's radically inclusive. But friends, it doesn't just stop there. I mean, have you ever thought around Christmas time about those magi? You know, the song, We Three Kings, it really butchers the story. They're not kings. Magi aren't kings. Magi are Persian magicians. They're astrologers. I mean, like, why else are they following a star? Have you ever, has that ever dawned on you? They're following a star because they are astrologers, likely from Persia, into magic into things that we would say, yeah, astrology, yeah, that, 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 that's not something that the people of God believe in or practice. And yet, they somehow rightly discovered the true location of baby Jesus, specifically through the use of astrology. Now, I'm not affirming astrology. Horoscopes are totally bunk. What I'm trying to affirm is that God's goodness, His mercy, His Desire to save is so much more radical than we could possibly imagine. I mean, how is it that the Rome, there's another Roman centurion, a different one than the one aforementioned one in Matthew uh, chapter 8. How is it that the Roman centurion at the end of Mark's gospel in Mark 15 verse 39, he's the only guy in all of Mark, that says Jesus is the Son of God. He's sitting there at the execution. He looks up at Jesus and goes, surely this man was the Son of God. How can that be? (laughs) I mean, this Roman centurion didn't go to synagogue. He didn't know the Torah. What I might suggest is that we should at least acknowledge the possibility That God so cares for humanity that he's willing to work within even the brokenness of astrology or other religions as vehicles of salvation, which lead individuals or even their entire households to the ontological Christ. Again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that astrology is salvific or whatever that Roman centurion was taught in his religious upbringing was salvific. But God is always working in culture. We are encultured people. There's no cultureless transmission of God's revelation. It always happens in our language. We've talked about this so much throughout the history of this podcast over the last three years. But what I'm trying to say is that in our culture, these meaning-making systems, they're flawed. Yeah, all of them are. Like, the way I see the world right now isn't completely right. That's, that's absurd. But Christ is at work in it. Christ is at work even in my cultural frame. He is working through these vehicles of salvation. They are like getting me in a car to take me to the true ontological Christ as he is. I mean ontological. I mean Christ as he is in reality, despite my imperfect imperceptions, my imperfect perceptions of him. So 
I think we should at least acknowledge that God is so good. He works through all of these things. He's at work in our culture, in our flawed pictures of him, in the movies that we watch, the books that we read, not just us, but in all over the world, probably even in the religious narratives that people learn. There is God's activity somehow present in that. We have to sift through it in order to see how these may actually still be pointing, even in all their flaws, even in the possibility that there's demonic deception nestled in in it somehow, that there are God, there's God's spirit at work, these vehicles of salvation that are pointing those to Christ. Let's consider a few more examples. In Acts 10, we see another Roman centurion. I mean, if you're a Jewish person, you uh, like living in the first century, there's few people that you might be um, more angry at or dislike more than a Roman centurion. And yet we see another Roman centurion in Acts chapter 10 named Cornelius. And he's described as simply being devout and God-fearing. Cornelius expresses his devotion to his incomplete understanding of simply a creator God through taking care of the poor and praying regularly. It's clear from the angel who visits Cornelius that the true triune God has received Cornelius's acts of worship as true worship to him. God has received it. That's what the angel straight up tells Cornelius, guys. I mean, it's right there. Cornelius doesn't have it all together. I mean, he the, the evidence seems to be he just believes there's a creator, right? He's probably responding to the light that he has at that point. And we see him taking care of the poor, praying regularly. And the angel's like, hey, God's received your worship, buddy. Now, it's important to note that Cornelius, though he's likely just kind of like a general sort of theist, is still producing fruit in keeping with repentance. He's not a Jew, and even though he's not a Jew, we still see that somehow his heart has been opened and prepared to receive the Jewish Messiah as Lord. Of course, Cornelius's journey doesn't end with him still just being kind of a general theist. We see Cornelius producing fruit in keeping with the Torah, and, and Peter is shocked at how Cornelius, this Gentile, has this pure-hearted devotion to God, and he doesn't understand it at first. He, he, how could Cornelius know God this way? And this is what Peter says, recorded in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. Quote, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. End quote. Peter proceeds then to complete the man's picture of God by telling him the message of Jesus. And Cornelius' family and friends and attendants that day come to explicitly believe in the historical. Christ, the one that was Peter's friend, the one that Peter followed in flesh and blood, and the one who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. In Acts 17, as the gospel spreads, 
through the missionary and evangelistic efforts of the newborn church, Paul gives a strongly implied endorsement of the possibility of other religions being used, that God is working through those other religions as a vehicle of salvation, not an end, but at least a vehicle that leads potentially to salvific union with Christ. When he explains to the Athenian philosophers on Mars Hill that they have been ignorant, though they've been ignorant of what they so devoutly worship, that God is still at work. Paul proceeds to explain to them the biblical narrative in that Mars Hill address. And as he does this, he makes an appeal to their own religious views. And we don't catch this right away, you know, just a surface level reading. We have to understand, with the help of biblical scholars, some of the some of the things that Paul actually quotes from in this address to the philosophers on Mars Hill. In Acts 17, verse 28, where it says, we are his offspring, Paul is actually quoting a ode, a poem, we could even say a, an old worship song to Zeus. We have to take note here that Paul does correct them, right? So he doesn't just leave them there. He brings correction to their beliefs. He shows them where their religious viewpoints are wrong, but he doesn't demonize it in its entirety. You know, Paul does give, and we need to make this clear, Paul gives a really strong condemnation of idolatry. But even in doing so, Paul makes it clear that no individual in human history, regardless of geographic location, has been too far removed from accessing God, that they couldn't, quote, reach out for him and find him. Read that again in Acts 17, verse 26 to 28. No one is beyond accessing God wherever they have lived in whatever religious system that they have lived within. Christ is at work. I highlight these passages not because I actually believe that other religions are salvific. I want to be clear, I am not a universalist. I am not what we could call a unitive pluralist, like John Hick, for example, the philosopher and theologian John Hick. I'm not saying that all religions are salvific. What I am saying is that no religions are salvific. No meaning-making narratives are salvific. Only the real ontological person of Jesus Christ is salvific. I believe that the running thread we have seen in the biblical examples that I've presented so far is encapsulated by the Apostle Paul in Romans 2 when he writes, quote, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace 
for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Pause the reading for a second. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> this, is, this is Paul summarizing what I've been trying to summarize that's been right there in the biblical text the whole time, even if we've missed it. Again, I'll start, uh, start I'll repeat that sentence one more time before continuing on. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Again, think Rahab, Cornelius, the widow at Zarephath. All right, all right, now continuing on. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares, end quote. Maybe you've read Romans a different way, but let me tell you, it's been right there all along, everyone. <laughs> it's, Paul is just summarizing what we have seen in the biblical narrative so far. Paul is clear in Romans 1 that regardless of ethnicity or religion, the whole world has had access to God. The wicked have even known God, and the key difference, though, among the wicked and the righteous is that they, quote, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles, end quote. So that's Romans 1, 18 to 22. Paul then argues here in chapter 2, that the Gentiles who had never heard of the Mosaic Covenant could become just as righteous as the Jews who had been given the law by what? By doing what was in the law. And Paul's really clear here in verse 14 that they were actually able to do so. It wasn't just like, well, in theory, the Gentiles, so everyone outside of the vocational covenantal people of God, in Abraham and Moses, those people set apart for that particular job description. It's not just in theory that they could be righteous. They actually were able to do so. I think what we wrestle with here is a Reformation influence on our reading, which might make us go, hang on a second. You know, you're hearing this stuff, you're hearing what I'm presenting, and you're saying, wait, no one, no one is able to simply by persistence in doing good, Paul, actually get eternal life, right? The Reformed reflex to jump just straight into chapter 3's exclamation that, quote, there is no one righteous, not even one. You know, that's good. We want to do that. The Reformation offered us 
some really important readings of Scripture that needed to be recovered. That's good, but only if it can be completed and paired with a more complete reading of Paul's argument in Romans. That doesn't just totally throw out what he said in chapter 2, but actually harmonizes it together. The key to this harmonization begins in Romans 3, in verses 21 to 31. Read through that, and you'll see this. Paul explains that the righteousness of God was knowable outside of the law, and that righteousness, whether found in the Jew or Gentile, comes about as a result of faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's point isn't that, well, is it works or faith? Is it thinking something or doing something? You know, that's sometimes how the whole faith versus works debate gets boiled down to. Is it right thinking or right doing? And Paul's like, you're missing it. All of the righteousness, whether it was found in Rahab the harlot or in Abraham, is the result of faith in Jesus Christ, or if I could put it another way, in the ontological Jesus Christ. Righteousness has no other origin than Christ. Those who have it, have it because of Christ. This is Paul's argument. If I could put it another way, some of you that grew up maybe passing out tracks might understand this. The Romans road is Christ. Once we understand this, we can begin to see how people like Rahab had faith, not because like, she just somehow accepted perfect cognitive theological information about God, but because she had faith in Christ, evidenced by the fruit of faith in Christ expressed in the law as hospitality to the foreigner. Cornelius, too, had faith in Christ even before he knew to call it Christ, even before he knew to call on Christ as Lord and be baptized. And this was evidenced by the fruit of faith. The fruit of faith in Christ is righteousness. And in Cornelius's case, this was expressed by Cornelius's charity to the poor. This understanding of Paul's argument is strengthened as you continue to read on into chapter 4. In chapter 4, Paul contends that, quote, Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offsprings, not only those who are of the law, but also to those that have the faith of Abraham. He is the Father of us all. Romans 4, verses 16 to 17. Did Abraham have the law? No. I mean, Abraham didn't even know God's name to be Yahweh. Abraham wouldn't have had a Trinitarian affirmation. Uh, Abraham wouldn't have believed in a fully God, fully human Messiah. These things just aren't his fault because he didn't live at a time and place where he could have had access to these true things, things I want to affirm and I totally believe ontologically are true. And yet Abraham is Paul's model for faith in Christ. How can that be, Paul? How can you point to Abraham as the model for faith in Christ when Abraham didn't know the Jesus of history? That's because Abraham knew the ontological Christ, the Logos, 
the Word who would become flesh, but was always pre-existent as the Word, the Son, the second person of the triune God. Abraham knew him, though he didn't know his name. The Apostle Paul's radical claim here is that it's even possible for those who have no hereditary relationship to Abraham to become part of Abraham's family through faith in Christ. For Paul, it's having the faith of Abraham that brings one into the family of God through Christ. Now, the mechanics of how this faith works and what the definitive limits of what God will accept as faith, it's not completely clear in the scriptures. It's a mystery. And I think it's a mystery that's part of God's own choosing so that we don't go above our pay grade and place ourselves in the judgment seat of Christ. What will Christ accept as a faithing response to the light of himself that he's given to somebody? I don't think we can definitively say these are the limits of what's acceptable. Clark Pinnock explains this well, quote, It would be nice to be able to be more precise in explaining how a saving yet non-Christian faith works. I wish we knew more about it than we do. Nevertheless, the fact remains that Scripture supports the position that it is possible, however it may be possible, to have faith on the basis of an uncertain amount of revelational information. I adduce the slogan in this connection, If something is actual, it must be possible. We do not have to know how it works in order to acknowledge it. End quote. In the next episode of our series, we will take a look at church history. We'll go back to the very beginning, to at least the beginning of church history that we have access to, and we'll see how the early church fathers affirmed this Christocentric inclusivism. And we'll talk about what went wrong. How did it change? How did the sort of ecclesiocentric, no salvation outside of the church become the more normative view, Catholic, and Protestant evangelical settings. Then finally, we'll consider if this is true, if this is the more biblical position, how does that affect the way we think about evangelism, how we think about missionary activity, how we think about our calling in culture, and of course, how we interact with those who are in different meaning-making stories and religious traditions. So thanks again for listening to today's episode. I'm sure you might have questions, objections, things you want to discuss with me about, and that's great. I'd love to talk with you about them as well. One of the best ways you can do that is by participating in our Patreon forum. We have a discussion forum for each episode that happens on Patreon. Uh, For as little as two bucks a month, you can become a supporter of this podcast and participate in those. But along with that, we also have monthly Patreon Zoom calls for those in our Theology 201 group or higher. There are Q&A episodes as well. Uh, I try to offer other additional resources. When I'm done with this series, I'm going to put together a reading list, a recommended reading list, some of the sources that I used in putting this series together. And those are the sorts of things that I'd like to offer as a thanks to those who are supporting this podcast at the different levels that they support. 
So again, you can reach out to me there with your questions. I always respond to the messages I receive on Patreon and participate actively in the discussion forums. But you know what? Another great perk about getting involved over there is that you can connect with other listeners of this program from around the world, actually, not just in the U.S., and in North America, but around the world who listen as well. And we have really respectful, nuanced conversations there. The quality of conversation there is so different than uh, much of the typical Twitter or, wow, I said that with a really British accent, (laughs) Twitter, the the typical Twitter or Facebook sorts of um, angry diatribes that people often get into when they talk about these sorts of important challenging and and difficult theological ideas. So if you want to have maybe a different level or better level of conversation, there's great people around the country and around the world who are participating in those forums. And they're also jumping in for these monthly Zoom calls as well. So you can find out about that and all the other great perks that come by supporting this podcast in the link that I provide in, uh, in the description below. I also want to encourage you, if you felt like this podcast is helpful, to leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, because that's the place where most people are still going to discover new podcasts. I don't do like advertising and things like that. Um, I share things on social media and my social media feeds that I feel are worth sharing. But if other people are going to discover it, it's either going to be by word of mouth or by uh, a rating and review that improves the uh, algorithmic chance of someone else stumbling upon this. So thanks for considering doing that as well. Of course, you can always also try to reach out to me on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, I do my best to respond to questions and comments over there as well. And you'll find a link to my Twitter account, my Twitter account. There's that British accent slipping out again for some reason. Um, You'll find a link for that in the description as well. Finally, I want to give an extra special thanks to those in our Deep Talks Patreon community in the Theology 201 groups or higher. Thank you to Tim K, Taylor S, Stephen M, Sean C, Sarah R, Sam P, Sam and Nicole, Rob, Peter, Paul Reese, Paul Spencer, Mike Thomas, Michael Peterson, Michael Hernstein, Michael Hawk, Luke H, Lola, Justin, JT, Josie, Johnny, John Michael, Dr. Jim, Hannah, Eli, Carolyn, Carolyn S, BJ, Anders, or Anders, you'll have to correct me, (laughs) Jesse, and Clint. Thank you all for your generous support. Hopefully you guys can participate in this month's uh, Patreon Zoom call. I'll be sending out more information on this month's time and opportunity for connection this week. You'll find out more about that. Thank you all for listening. Look forward to hearing your feedback and comments, questions, and even objections. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.